0: Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Patrick Francois. I'm a professor at the Vancouver School of Economics. And today in the Ideas for India podcast, I'm going to be talking with Professor Joe Henrik. Joe is a professor and chair of human biology at Harvard University. Hello, Joe.
1: Hey, great to be with you, Patrick.
0: Okay, Joe, you've written what I think is actually one of the most compelling books I've probably read in the last 10 years. It's called The Weirdest People in the World, how the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous. And it's really in the wheelhouse of, you know, what I imagine is a large part of the audience here. This is really going to have sort of profound implications for how we think about the process of economic development. So really what I want to do today is to explore the the different dimensions of the book, the argument from really from cover to cover, but I really want to focus on the sort of touch points that, uh, that are most relevant for the kind of economically literate audience that we're going to have here. So I'll try to guide it in that direction to some extent. So, so perhaps the best place to start is just as the book starts, with you explaining to us you know, what weird and the weird psychology is, and then we'll take it from there.
1: Okay, great. So uh, back in the 2000 aughts, I was working with two psychologists, so Steve Heinen and Arnor and Zion. And we each had expertise in different aspects of psychology and over lunch one day we ran to realize that we'd all noticed that not only were there differences among societies and how they responded in various psychological experiments, but the participants most commonly used by researchers, both behavioral economists and psychologists, were often particularly unusual anchoring the extreme end of the distribution. So over the next few years, we did a big review, which we eventually published in a paper of the same name as the book, The Weirdest People in the World. And there we were able to show that you know, whenever we had data, not every time, but almost every time, the populations most commonly used that were mostly American, some Europeans and stuff were at the extreme end of the distribution. So to kind of raise people's consciousness about this problem and remind researchers of it, we came up with this acronym WEIRD which stands for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And it was meant to be a kind of a mirror for researchers who are commonly Americans, a lot of psychology is done in the US, as well as behavioral economics. And to remind them that, you know, if they're just sampling their undergraduates, which was common at the time, or nowadays people doing experiments online, they have to think about the possibility of substantial psychological variation in different societies. So they can't generalize from the populations typically studied so that's the origins of the weird acronym
0: i guess it was probably unintuitive to you we probably imagine that we're in the in a population that's representative of the planet in some way so maybe we could just unpack some of the elements of what weird are especially as as they're going to relate to the narrative here So, so i understand that that it's these are psychological characteristics so what are the kind of key components of it that stand out
1: well, one that a lot of folks will be, inter- will be familiar with is the notion of individualism. And so you can think of this as a package of traits that has to do with people's focus on themselves and their own attributes and aspirations. So psychologists study self-concept, for example, and they show that Westerners tend to think about their characteristics and accomplishments and attributes of themselves rather than their social relationships. A classic question is the I am test. So you have to fill in a statement that says, I am what? And when you do this in some places, people will say, I am curious, I am a scientist, I am a kayaker. Those would be things about me that I might want to convey to somebody else, as opposed to, you know, I'm Jessica's father, are friend, a bunch of things about my personal relationships, which see me as a node in a nexus. And this then seems to be associated with all kinds of things like overconfident. Westerners are notoriously overconfident in domains that they think they're skilled in, or self-enhancing, you know, uh, putting your best, uh, emphasizing your best traits. Um, An emphasis on guilt, so living up to my own personal standards versus shame, my concern about what other people think of me and going along with social rules and social norms and stuff like that. And so you can find interesting variation along all these dimensions. And it's not really clear whether this is one psychological dimension that causes all these kinds of phenomena or whether cultural evolution has pulled together these different features of psychology because they help individuals navigate the institutional environments that they face.
0: Yeah, so so that's, I think, an interesting departure point, too, for thinking about the kind of global implications here. So the first thing that you talked about was, in a sense, we could think of a contrast between people who think of themselves as, in some sense, an isolated analytical individual and people who think of themselves embedded in a society. And I imagine that at certain epochs in our past, it was really valuable at the societal level to have a strong conception of location in a group and commitment to a group. So it was that particularly useful at a particular time for human societies? And if so, how did that change? Yeah,
1: so one of the key ideas in the book, so I'm kind of, I'm in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology, and I'm thinking about kind of long-term cultural evolution. So when I think about, and you look cross-culturally at all the societies that have been studied by anthropologists, and you look at the Paleoanthropological record, it looks like the first institution, so collections of social norms that organize people's roles for which deviations of width can get sanctioned, was probably kin based institutions. So, like other apes, humans have a tendency to be altruistic towards close relatives. But in many human societies, those are taken and extended to cousins or other relatives. We have responsibilities to in laws have social obligations, and this helped web the first networks that humans began to rely on for economic production, for security in old age, for security when injured, social insurance, sharing networks, and even trade relationships began through these kind of personal networks. So in terms of like cultural evolutionary trajectory, kinship is really the place where a lot of stuff begins, and then politics and these other institutions that we tend to think about are actually coming or have to deal with the existence of these intensive kin-based institutions.
0: So these kin-based institutions maybe could actually be really useful for leveraging larger scales of cooperation then, right? Especially if you can extend the notion of kin beyond the immediate nuclear family. Was that playing an important role in, to whatever extent we have archaeological record about that um, in, in our pre yeah, What we have is
1: a, I mean, we have a combination of archaeological, historical, and then anthropological kind of comparative ethnography. And the cool thing about something like a clan, so you know, tracking descent through either the fathers or the mothers, the matrilineal inheritance, this allows you to create a corporate group. So one of the problems with human kind of genetic inheritance as we're related to is it creates all these conflicts between individuals of different, so I'm related to some cousins that my other cousins aren't related to. But if you form a clan, you can eliminate conflicts of interest, and then we can all act as a corporate unit. So clans pop up, among the Aztecs, and they pop up in China, and they pop up in Africa, because it seems to be a really good way of organizing society that allows these units to defend territory. They have shared kind of inheritance of land often. And so there's a bunch of traits which pop up a lot, And, and kind of see them as functional in the sense of helping this group deal with shocks and protect themselves and produce economically, those kinds of things.
0: So just to kind of repeat it, see if I got it right. So sense that's part of our innate psychology, because we have a probably a genetic tendency and makes genetic sense to aid people that we have links to. So hence the kind of leverage that clans would start from. And then we extend it by creating institutions perhaps around marriage and around bonding and around obligation that are hinged on that clan concept and successful societies, at least in our maybe pre-agricultural past, or even beyond that, were able to extend those clans into coordinated groups of cooperation and perhaps engage in conflict with other large groups. And and these were the early sort of precursors to larger pre-modern states. Would we go that far and say that even, they might've even had, in some cases, things that augmented the clans, like bureaucracies or armies that were maybe hired or mercenaries. Why isn't that the end of the story? Why aren't we just there today? So the case that I make in the book is that as you know, once you have the origins of
1: agriculture, society is being scaling up using this basic kinship. And as you mentioned, there's a number of instincts, not just our kin based altruism, but our pair bonding, which allows the form of basis of marriage and our incest aversion, which can be extended to create certain kinds of social networks based on who we have children with and who we don't have children with. And then this kind of allows us to scale up. And then there are other things like segmentary lineage systems, which you find in Africa, where you link a bunch of clans to a common ancestor, or age sets, which you find in lots of continents. They've been probably most studied in Africa, where you bond, say, men together at a certain age, and they go through a series of rites that kind of pull them together, and that helps pull together the clans. So you can think of these as all clever ways that cultural evolution has figured out to bind the clans. And then, of course, one is to have a state. So some kind of bureaucratic system. But what's interesting about these early states is they were often managing these larger kin-based institutions. They weren't individuals with individual rights and stuff. So the question that I kind of set up in the book is that seems like one structure, but that's not what we see emerging when the West after 1500 say. So how do you get to those kinds of states where there's individual rights, notions of democracy and things like that? So the case that I make is that there's actually a path dependence and that Catholic church breaks down the intensive kinship units that are so common in so many societies into individual monogamous nuclear families. And then it has a bunch of rules and taboos and prescriptions that prevent them from trying to reforming clans or kindreds or these other kinship structures. And so they form new kinds of institutions. Charter towns, guilds, universities, these things that we see appearing in the high Middle Ages in Europe, and then societies get reorganized because it can't go down the usual pathway that's this kinship intensifying pathway.
0: Just to kind of delve into that a little bit more deeply. So the church, this is around after the fall of the Roman Empire. Is it around then when the church is really gaining power in, in Western Europe? Or was it before? The, the church starts doing this actually before the fall. Uh,
1: but then, it, you know, once, the, once Rome falls, then it's having a lot of influence on the various kind of principalities and kingships that are scattered throughout Europe. So it's influencing the law codes. It's trying to convert people to Christianity. So, you know, as a kind of group coming in with more sophisticated technology and writing and things like that, it can be more influential. And one of the things that's being influential is to get people to... Abandon a lot of you know abandoned polygyny, abandoned cousin marriage. These kind of common kinship practices that you you found in pre-Christian Europe and are common around the world, as anthropologists document, arranged marriage.
0: So the church, you know, and you could think of a few reasons why they might want to do that. It could just be happenstance that they actually thought it was you know divinely a sin to do it. So then that's why they followed it. I guess it doesn't their, their intent or purpose doesn't really matter. But can you describe? Because I guess the, you know, as you mentioned a number of times in the book, the conduit through which a lot of these things are connected is changes in the psychology of individuals in those societies. So can you describe a little bit how the stripping of the importance of clans and and kin-based networks would act upon the psychology, and and you posited acted upon the psychology of the Europeans of the time?
1: Yeah, so I think that and if you're going to set an easy way to do this is to set up a dichotomy. So in a society with uh, intense, really intensive kin-based institutions, you know, you think of a new child being born, you inherit most of your social relationships. So you're involved in this network. The culture and norms prescribe you a lot of responsibilities. So you have uncles and cousins that you're going to help out or defend or protect. You might have shared responsibilities. So in some societies, if your brother commits a crime, you could be prosecuted for that, you know, if he slips away and and escapes or something. So you have shared responsibility. And so this, this means you're webbed into that network. And it's really important that you do the things for that network that is going to help that network. Um, And also trust. So say you want a business partner, you're going to look through your network and try to figure out who you can trust. So trust is based on shared embeddedness in this network. I can trust this other guy because I have 10 connections to him. And if, if he defects on me, everybody's going to be mad at him. Whereas in a world with these uh, small nuclear families, you don't have all these relatives. So you have to cultivate attributes that allow you to kind of go out into the market of friends and mates and business partners. And you have to have things that make you unique and set you apart. So you start worrying about individualism and your attributes and accomplishments. And then for trust, you don't always have these networks to make sure someone's trustworthy. So you're focusing on people's dispositions. You're looking for trustworthy people people who are trustworthy dispositionally across context, because you you can't rely on this network webbing. Um, So it's just, it's creating more individualism, more of this kind of dispositional thinking, concerns about impersonal trust are over here, where here it's about social relationships, networks, nepotism, these other kinds of things. And both are adaptive within their cultural context. So it's kind of a multiple equilibrium situation where once you're in this world, there's a bunch of things you have to do, and that's going to help you be successful. In this other world, you got to take a different strategy. Otherwise, you're not going to be as successful.
0: Yes. So I think one of the great things in the book is, at least to the economically literate reader, is the way that you marshal evidence. There's, I guess, a tendency, and it's relatively easy perhaps to to spin a a long historical narrative. But what you and your co-authors, but also you know, you, you deal with a, a broad body of evidence showing that at least, you know, in the contemporary world, this correlates. And also the narrative that you tell about Europe up until the end of the Middle Ages is, is the evidence is consistent with that narrative. So can you pick out some of the bits? And I know this is a, a massive part of the book. So you really to really go through it properly, we need to to engage with the book, but just some of the bits of that evidence that convinced you and actually would help to speak to that.
1: Yeah, so looking globally, we use this data source created by anthropologists in the 1960s called the Ethnographic Atlas, and one of the things that anthropologists have been obsessed with, I think because when they go to study diverse societies, they found that kinship was so important, is they recorded a lot of information about kinship, so how important cousin marriage is, whether there's polygyny, Were there are clans, where did people live after marriage, and we created an index called the Kinship Intensity Index, and then using that, we could correlate that with some psychological data. So we have 17 different measures of psychology at the national level in different places. And so we can look to see if the kinship intensity of a country, for example, is correlated with these 17 different psychological measures. And you know, it's a cross-national regression. So we don't want to put confidence in it, but you at least see there are broad patterns for all these different features of psychology. In many cases, you know, we have data on something like blood donations, or whether diplomats from certain places get traffic tickets when they park in New York, uh, using Ted Miguel and Ray Fishman's data. And so all of those seem to tell the same basic story. And then we can also measure the degree to which a population has been exposed to the church. So we look at all the different populations around the world using the migration matrix and that's commonly used in economics, and we can then roll those back to Europe and look at how long those populations were under the church, and we have a database of the diffusion of bishoprics across Europe. And then that gives us a measure of how long different populations were under the church, and we can see if that predicts kinship intensity, and it does, and see if that then predicts the psychological measures. I zoomed in on three places, so working with some economists uh, Jonathan Schilt, Jonathan Beauchamp, and Dumani uh, Barani Rod. We look at just Europe and we get these measures of the church intensity for different regions of Europe. And we look to see if that predicts the kinship intensity measured using cousin marriage within Europe. And we can just compare regions within the same country and control for lots of things you might be worried about. And we can show that relationship. And then we get some psychological measures from the European Social Survey. So trust, fairness, a measure of individualism and a measure of conformity. And we're able to make all the links that you'd want to make there. So between kinship intensity and these psychological measures between the church and kinship and between the church and the psychological measures. And then you can also look at uh, China. So one thing to do is say, well, part of the story here is that kinship intensity matters because people are adapting to these different things. The church is one of the things that affects kinship intensity, but certainly other things do. So I spent some time looking at data collected by the psychologist Thomas Talhelm in different provinces within China and in China, kinship intensity varies because of the ability to do patty rice agriculture. So patty rice leads to more clans. And then the question is, does the clan thing cash out in psychology in the way we think? And the analysis there suggested similar kinds of patterns. And then Thomas actually gathered data in India also, which is cool because the Indian gradient on paddy rice agriculture is east-west instead of north-south. So you might worry in China that, you know, uh, it's just something else going on that's a north-south thing. There's lots of things that could be correlated. But then we do it east-west and Indian get the same answer. So that's just some of the ways we tested it.
0: Yeah. So I think they and a lot of those, and especially when you're using sort of geographical variation, you're really speaking to the kind of concerns that are typical to economists. We're worried about conflicting factors and, in fact, and reverse causation. But I also feel that that's a little bit of a misplaced criticism here too, right? Because if I understand correctly, the thesis, a lot of the things that you're talking about lead to sort of virtual circles of effect and counter effect and reinforcing effect that build the cycle. So in a sense, when you're thinking about these long time frames, the concern with one different arrow, one particular arrow of causation is a little bit misplaced. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the tricky things about testing these ideas, because the model I have in mind is really this one where you're getting these feedback loops going. So, you can always get rid of the correlation if you put some of the things being caused, and then there's this intercausality. So, so that mm-hmm. is
0: true. Yeah. So, so, then, so, then we have a Europe that's, uh, we just focus back on Europe again, uh, that's sort of stripped of its, you know, the, um, some of the strongest innate tendencies towards clannishness, at least for a large part of the population. Maybe the nobility is still persisting with that, but within the emerging middle class. So then that's a change, if I understand that, that affects the psychology of citizens of Europe across the different states. And then this provides sort of a fertile ground for the emergence of other things. So these other things are now elements that I'd say are are sexy now to economists, so institutions. So, But you're really taking a, a view that's a step back from where we usually start with institutions, right? You're saying, no, 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 institutions and the ones that we talk about that came to dominate the world the ones that emerged in Western Europe really grew out of this foundation that was psychological, and I guess here you'll be going to be able to talk even more about evidence too, right? So how does that work?
1: The key idea is that once people are, once they can't rely on their kinship structures and they're stuck with these monogamous nuclear families, they got to build other kinds of organizations. So I mentioned that the charter cities start up, but then you have a bunch of strangers who have to figure out how to govern themselves. And I think more importantly, you have different charter towns or charter cities competing for the best merchants and the best blacksmiths and stuff. So they begin writing charters, town charters, they kind of offer a good deal to people, like something that would attract someone with an individualistic psychology who doesn't have a big family and lots of clan ties, what would appeal to them? And so you get things where they endow them with individual rights, they prevent them from impressment by the local Duke, freedom to start businesses, things like that. And so then you get these charter towns that are kind of competing and then they're creating little baby charter towns. And so there's this interesting evolutionary process there. But the more you do that, the more people can be individualistic and trusting strangers can lead to profit. You have the emergence of these market norms where people are generally trying to be trusting and fair minded with strangers because they can't rely on trade through the networks of their relatives or their ethnic ties. Ethnic ties are being dissolved because the marriage norms are forcing people to marry across ethnic groups. So Europe had lots of tribes, like lots of places in the pre-Christian period, but the marriage norms forced a lot of people to intermarry. So, you know, the Franks and the Celts and all these groups begin to kind of vanish and they can use the Christianity as their shared basis for family. I mentioned, I talk about universities and even the monasteries begin proliferating and you can see they're becoming more democratic and they're creating franchises and they're electing abbots, uh, stuff they didn't do in the past.
0: So in a sense, this is a sort of proto-modern states are sort of emerging out of these European city-states.
1: And they're towns, so like they're free cities. They're charter towns, which aren't totally free, but they're, they're have some degree of freedom. And the leaders, that you know, the dukes and the princes and stuff, are uh, open to these towns because they do generate a lot of revenue, right? So it turns out these are profitable, so they can you know help fill the coffers and whatnot. So you seem to get some freedom that way. And some of the lines of evidence, so a line in my research that goes way back is the notion that market integration can make people more fair-minded which is non-intuitive for some. So I review some evidence in the book suggesting that the more people become less reliant on subsistence agriculture and have to rely on exchange in the market, exchange for labor, buying goods, getting their food, all this kind of stuff in the market, you have lots of daily mutually beneficial transactions that leads people to be more fair-minded, say, with dealing with strangers. And then that, of course, is going to grease the wheels of commerce and exchange.
0: Yeah, that is actually, I think, an un- unintuitive proposition to a lot of people that markets actually don't bring out necessarily the worst in people, but actually might condition them to think of others as not engaged in a zero-sum tussle with them, but engaged in the possibility of mutually non, beneficial.
1: Non-zero-sum.
0: Yeah, so the non-zero-sum
1: thing is important. And I think one of the things I try to develop in the book is I think the both intuitions are right. So the kind of Marx intuition that you know, markets, you know, alienate us from our labor and, you know, make us feel like cogs in the machine. And also the evidence that I'm talking about, which is the due commerce hypothesis that it leads to this gentility and this friendliness to strangers. They're both true in the sense I describe in the book, because, you know, there does seem to be this greater fairness with strangers, willingness to cooperate with strangers. But there's also this sense in which people are less interconnected in these deep personal relationships, which they're reliant on, for their very survival, for their care and old age, for all the things that the kinship structure does. So I've done a lot of research in Fiji on these kind of remote islands in the Fijian archipelago. And there really is this kind of warmth that comes from these tight kinship bonds that people have. They've known these people their whole lives. They're going to help each other if anything happens. And if you're kind of reliant on the market, you know, it just doesn't have that same kind of feel. So I think that's what Marx was getting at. And it's true, but then there's also this other side of it.
0: And that other side of it, so developing those other, say, more impersonal and individualist sides that locate o- autonomy in the individual and free will, they seem to be more consistent with the institutions that followed in Europe, right? So right. so we think of things like individual-based law rather than collective law, the kind of mobility that allowed for urbanization, which diffused more, the, the kind of power of the clans. And I wonder if you want to go as far as saying like even things like the enlightenment, the emergence of science, the industrial revolution, are those things, they seem consistent with it. They seem like a package, but. Yeah,
1: I definitely want to go that far. So I make the case in the book that there's a literature on the unusualness of Western law and how much it's focused on the individual. And even to the point of being focused on individual mental states. So early constructors of Western law are, are like detailing all the things that could affect how much you're going to be punished based on the details of your mental state. Did you know this would kill the person for take take the case of murder? Did you plan it? You know, and, you know, this all increases how much you're going to get punished depending on how many, what mental states you've had in lots of places. It's just, did you kill them or not? And then there's a fixed penalty. So this focus on individual's mental state. So, you know, you can actually see the law changing where, You know, if someone does a crime, the father's not going to be held responsible because in lots of places, the father's held responsible for crimes committed by the child if the child slips away. So, you know, that's removed because we begin to isolate on the individual and the idea of one person, one vote. That's something that's very non-intuitive to my Fijian friends, for example, because they would say something like, well, an old grandfather like me, why should my vote count the same as this young 18 year old? There's no reason, you know, but in another world, those are both individuals and they should have some say. So that's okay. Yeah. So, so, and I think that pushes into Protestantism, which, you know, a lot of times, you know, the old Weberian story, things start with Protestantism, but you have to explain how we got to a religion that is so individualistic based. So in Protestantism, you don't even have the church to help you get to heaven. You have individual mental states. So it's faith alone was, was Martin Luther's idea. And so there, your ability to get into heaven is based on faith. You don't have the community or the church to help you get in. So it's really isolating in that sense. And then that may have these downstream consequences
0: that are their are famous. I see. So so Protestantism's kind of the uber weird religion, right? So we start with gods that are, you know, multifaceted and, and capricious, and then we move to you know the monogods, like the one in Catholicism, which is very focused on the afterlife and good and bad, but Protestantism goes a step further in the sense that it drills down to the individual. Is that it? So the individual then becomes, it's what's going on in the individual's head that matters.
1: Yeah, right. And this is the famous debate between faith alone and good works. And so Protestant, at least some Protestant faiths are saying, yeah, all that matters is, you know, faith in Jesus, faith in God. And developing that personal, like the idea that an individual, like a mere mortal like us could have a personal relationship with a supernatural being sounds very strange to lots of people in lots of places in the world. But, you know, Protestantism begins to say that this one person has to read the sacred scriptures for themselves, the Bible, they have to learn to read that. And that has big consequences. And then that they can then have to negotiate with the divine. Uh, you know, that's kind of really put, putting the individual on a pedestal and allowing them to have every person, every individual has to do that. Uh, So that's strange in a kind of global and historical perspective.
0: And if we think about the diffusion of that, the reason that that all got going in Europe is it partly related to the fact that the states in Europe were interconnected in the sense that people were moving across them, but they were in competition. So the institutions that were most able and most, so that psychological states that were most useful for leveraging institutions that were effective could then promulgate through that competitive process. Is that part of it interstate?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, I'm really interested in that competitive effect, because one of the things you see is a lot of mobility of individuals, especially among these cities and towns. And then you see the copying of institutions. So the idea is that you're getting these conglomerations of individuals with certain psychologies and institutions. And, you know, those were, some were able to, some combinations were able to prosper, and then they become more successful and they're copied by other towns, other cities, other states, eventually.
0: There's kind of levels of evolution and selection that are going on at there's sort of multiple levels of it right so I, d- I don't think at these sort of time frames we're talking about any sort of genetic evolution right. right so is it but there is some sort of cultural evolution going on at the level of psychology so maybe an expression of the way the psychologies are expressed you know building on some innate psychology i personally don't have a, a strong sense of what the innate core things are and then how we build but maybe that doesn't matter too much and then there's another level of competition which is across polities in some stance, right? Is that right? Yeah. So, I
1: mean, the way I think about this, this is a standard cultural evolutionary view is that individuals are learning from other members of the community and you're acquiring norms. And this is also shaping how you think about the world and navigate the world. So that's what I was talking about with the impersonal pro-sociality. There's also something called analytic thinking, which is a particular thinking style varies with holistic, and I talked about the individualism, but then you got to have these higher level institutions, like what's your town charter, or how are you going to organize your national government? And, you know, you can have towns competing for, for the best migrants and competing economically with other towns. There was also a lot of violent conflict that towns seemed to had to deal with, and, you know, there's literature within economics on this. And then, of course, eventually this gets to the national level governments, where some governments like the UK become more successful, the Glorious Revolution, all this, than the US. And then those institutions begin proliferating. So the US Constitution gets copied and proliferates all over the world,
0: you
1: know, which was influenced by the Bill of Rights in England. And
0: So then if we look at a lot of these uh, institutions that are developing and sort of glomming onto the psychological makeup of these Europeans, they're then the ones that come to dominate the world, right? So we have the Industrial Revolution now, is, is that a happenstance or is that growing out of these?
1: Yeah, so one of the, you know, the key idea that I that I really have to contribute, I think, to the Industrial Revolution thing, I mean, there's the origins of the laws and, and whatnot, but the thing that I emphasize in the book is, as I see the key thing to be explained or the big puzzle, is how you get rapid innovation. So people like Joel Moker have argued that, you know, the key thing is, how did you get this kind of explosion of innovation that, you know, explodes out of the English midlands after 1750? So in other work, I've argued that the key to this, what I call cumulative cultural evolution or generating innovations, making culture more adaptive is the collective brain. So if you look at lots of innovations, they are actually recombinations of different ideas drawn from different people. So, you know, people are only so smart. We really, what we do is we look out there and we take ideas from others and we recombine them to make new baby ideas. And what's happening in Europe is there's new institutions and the flow of people and of course, literacy are interconnecting and it's making the collective brain larger and larger. So for example, people are forming scientific societies where groups of people are getting together and they're reading literature from around Europe and they're swapping ideas. You see this occurring in France, it's documented also in the UK, and it seems to be associated with say more British patents or uh, more f- exhibits in the 1950, 1851 World's Fair. Um, so, so, so there's those kinds of effects. Uh, there's also things like the in, apprenticeship. So if you look at India and China, apprenticeship is usually done within the caste or within the clan, within the family or whatnot. But Europeans are bringing in apprentices that are strangers. And then there's something called a journeyman phase, which is kind of like being a postdoc. So you, you've been trained in one place and you go to a new place. You interact with journeymen from other places. And that seems like a very ripe area for new crafts and new ways of doing the same crafts to crop up. And you're not going to do that unless there's some degree of norms about dealing with strangers and you can't be too nepotistic and all those kinds of things need to be in place before you can, those institutions can work. But then the idea is they can really generate lots of innovation.
0: So then this gives those states in Western Europe a huge technological advantage. And I guess, I guess you don't talk about this too much in the book, but that would explain straight away where the kind of colonial enterprise gets a leg up and how it's able to then export to some extent some of the institutions across the world and you know of course there's also the dramatic downsides of colonization as well and the atrocities but they, but in any case it facilitates that whole endeavor so that's
1: Yeah. And so like things people often point to would be the inclusive institutions. Part of the story we just told is how you get more inclusive institutions that are interwoven with this weird psychology, things like democracy, and then also the inventions. So all the economic output, and then also the desire to build markets and to go other places. So China could have done a colonial expansion, you know, around 1421, but- they didn't for various reasons. It seems like they weren't that interested in other places. And then finally, the weapons. So Europe has tons of wars, lots of conflicts at various levels. And so there's a huge arm industry that's international. And so they're, you know, creating cannons and eventually guns. And this then, of course, has a big effect on the ability of uh, Europe to go out and commit all those atrocities, engage in colonialism and genocide and all all that kind of stuff.
0: So I guess um, this is guns, germs and steel, but... uh... I just want to know where you see the relationship between the narrative that you're telling and Jared Diamond's famous narrative, because it seems like at, at some point there's a lot in common, but there seems to be a, I guess there's much more detail at the latter end, right? In your yeah, and the, the argument that I make in the book is that
1: I think Diamond's argument is it pretty much describes the pattern we see around the world up till around a thousand CE, so. You know, he has this idea that uh, biogeography and the orientation of the continents are important. And if you look at the societies that are really prospering then, you know, it's a lucky latitude, what Anmar Mars calls the lucky latitude. So the Mediterranean, the Middle East, India, and then all the way over to the Yellow River and China and whatnot. And this is where like the most complex technology can be found. There's philosophy, there's you know, sophisticated science, in, even in places like Central Asia, that all fall along the lucky latitudes and would seem to be benefiting from an exchange of information between them, as well as the benefits of an early start with rice in China and wheat and barley and whatnot in the Middle East. So then, but then I make that argument about that those societies were all ultimately built on this intensive kinship structure. And there's not very much Europe as a backwater at this point. So I have these quotes from these um, Muslim philosophers at the time who were like, you know, there's the barbarians, the white barbarians to the north and the black barbarians to the south. Uh, referring to, you know, the folks in Denmark and then also uh, folks further south. So, so the, that's what the world looks like to him at around 1000 CE. But then, then the argument is, is that the church, just by happenstance, the church came up with these ideas. Lots of other religions came up with other ideas. This happened to be the one that reorganized the kind of grassroots kinship structures, led this, led Europe down a different evolutionary trajectory, a different cultural evolutionary trajectory, which led to the kinds of institutions which eventually spread around the world, you know, market capitalism or um democratic government, those kinds of things. And so Diamond's right, except he's got to explain what happened in Europe after about a thousand CE.
0: Right. And there's no way he can point to differential geography to explain that, right? So, so that's right. I see.
1: So in his book, he kind of waves off the Europe problem. I mean, he talks about that there's a lot of competition, which I think there's something to that. But then he doesn't really explain why the institutions that developed in Europe look so different than, than what we'd seen elsewhere.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know if I if I bring this back, I mean let's just recap uh, the story quickly, and then we can talk about you know what I think it says about modern economies today, just to make sure that everyone's uh, you know on board with it. So so if I think of it, you know the the kind of the, the bullet point recap. So we start with this there's this kind of set of psychological beliefs that are that we think of as you know psychological characteristics that we think of as as weird and uh, and that they're unique and they emerge in in Western Europe as a package. But the underlying reason that they emerge is that there is a value to societies being able to scale up. Initially, they use kin-based connections to, to, to affect them, to achieve it, but those are limited. And this allows a more effective scaling up of societies. Now, it was facilitated by the church, but once you get that in the church having stripped kin and clans from their powerful influence in Europe, then you allow for these different or psychological traits to emerge and be solidified they then interact with the institution so you get this back and forth between the institutions and the laws and and you get lots of examples of it which leads to a sort of a an ascendant position for those societies and then they they develop things like the industrial revolution their outcomes and this gives them an advantage which then they export all over the world and in conflict with each other too but all, you know you know, all over the world and then these So then we find ourselves in universities today, we're kind of inheritors of these weird characteristics and we look around and think well this is just normal right, this is how people are. And it wasn't until you and your colleagues came along and said hey hang on this is actually not part of our innate psychology right, this is actually something that it's a kind of set of characteristics in a sense that people get inculcated from their societies and you can look at a lot of societies that don't have them and actually even more than that. They're super weird right, these are not like normal things in any sense. So in a sense we come full circle from that initial observation to an explanation of how it promulgated and affected the whole world. So that's the story. Is that it?
1: Yeah, that is a good summary.
0: (laughs) Okay, okay, so good. So I think we've we've like filled out a lot of the bits of that. And again, to get really get it, you need to really engage with the book, which is easy actually, at least for people like me. But I think for the for the for the readers in general i'm going to get my mother to read it i think she can certainly engage with it happily but let's i want to just talk about some of the implications back to where we are today so uh, you know in my part of the world which is development economics we're interested in i guess the biggest motivating question there although this is not a lot of the research that's done in development economics you know today but i think the question that motivates the field is you know why are some places so much poorer than others and So what explains it first and what can be done about it? So we're interested in practice. So I think, you know, traditionally we've thought, well, you know, as a profession, what's about accumulating stuff, right? So some sort of stuff. So it could be capital, it could be human capital. So it could be, you know, knowledge embodied individuals. It could be, and I think this is the more recent direction has been, it's about knowledge, right? So disembodied knowledge, technology, and all of these things are correlated with what we see as prosperity. So, so that's where I think the profession sort of focused And then we've sort of stepped back and said, well, you know, a big part of it's probably the fact that there's certain rules and norms and let's call them institutions that facilitate the accumulation of those things. And it's only recently that I think economists have been open to the idea, well, maybe if we believe that narrative, that culture plays an important role. And I think the way that the profession goes is that people say, well, no, I think it's largely institutions and other people say it's largely culture. Uh, And then there's kind of a battle and people draw on different bits. But there hasn't been, I think, a narrative like yours in economics, right? Have you seen that? I mean, because I think we're putting those things to some extent, maybe falsely at odds as as kind of fundamental determinants.
1: I mean, the the two possible contributions I I feel like is one, this this conflict to describe between cultural and institutional explanations. The case that i try to make as a cultural evolutionist is you know in the beginning you have an ape right and then you got to explain everything so institutions they sort of most fundamental of human institutions are actually just collections of social norms so for example marriage is an institution that's governed by a bunch of norms about you know what kind of ritual you have to go through and who can marry who and where you live after you get married and how the the couple's supposed to behave in certain ways so that's a collection of norms that forms an institution the kinds of institutions that are economists are interested in are actually way down the road, right? You've gotta to get to these formal institutions where we write a constitution and we organize some kind of bureaucratic structure and whatnot. And so those can be picked up and transported, but what you can't pick up and transport are all the other social norms that kind of govern people's behavior that allow that higher level structure To operate and the psychology that people have so the way they think about the world and what their priorities are is also shaped by those social norms so i guess i want to say that you know this kind of i think it dissolves the distinction that uh you know maybe nathan nunn and daron asemoglu would the debate they might have about culture versus institutions because it means that institutions have to be explained as a product of culture and there's a fit between the formal institutions and all the informal norms and the psychology
0: yeah so i guess that brings us sort of directly to the issue that uh, preoccupies development economists. How can things be improved? So if we think, okay, we identify say a set of institutions that work in one setting, this is in some sense a pessimistic story about how one would take the knowledge and the valuable things learned from that setting to another one, right?
1: Yeah, It's it, well, it could be optimistic or pessimistic. One is it says that you're gonna end up with misfits when you try to take institutions, say developed in one place and drop them on another population where life's organized differently at the very level of the family and how children are raised. And then how people think about the world, it's not gonna to fit together. And that's gonna cause dislocation, it's gonna mean the new inst- the institution that's dropped on top is not gonna function very well. Now on the plus side, maybe there's a way to create an endogenously locally evolved institution that doesn't look like the one that it came from, but it maybe it leads to greater prosperity and solves a lot of the problems you wanna solve but we might not know what that institution is going to look like. So we might have to create an endogenous process that'll create the new institution. That's hard. Cause I think one of the things that comes out of studying all these different uh, societies is that cultural evolution is smarter than we are. So it can, if there's all kinds of forms out there that are really hard to imagine, like age sets, I don't think most people would imagine age sets, but they work really great, at least in some contexts.
0: Yeah. I guess this kind of leads to some of the, the tragedy of the interaction between sort of dominant western cultures we've seen in the new world and pre-existing indigenous peoples right so it's the it's the complete obliteration of of that and no time for that evolution so if, you know, you could imagine in the best of all worlds that sort of a, a set of opportunities gets presented by these people with superior technologies and then a potential evolutionary process where there's a back and forth between the two but because it's so overwhelming from one direction I guess you, that, that never happened, right? So we don't have good examples of this evolving psychology and, and institutional package other than in Western Europe, which didn't have these problems. Is that consistent with how well, you said I mean,
1: we, have, we have examples, so we have interesting examples in places like Japan and China where, so during the Meiji Restoration, uh, the Japanese import all this civil law from lots of Western society. So they end polygamy and end cousin marriage. And that begins to restructure Japan along, more nuclear family lines, and they then later import lots of American institutions. But if you look at how, like, so they have, in some cases, copies of American laws, but the legal system doesn't look anything like the U.S. legal system, right? Americans are always suing each other. Japanese folks don't tend to sue each other, even though that the same formal institution is there. People think differently. So it operates a bit differently, but it's just another, it's like a, a new thing because it's a combination of a bunch of Western laws, but also the indigenous Japanese psychology is interfacing with those and, and making a third
0: new thing. I totally see it. And, and it comes from, I guess, a, a key ingredient there is it's, it's being implemented by the society itself, or at least the powerful individuals in that society. It's, it's done from a position of power rather than a position of subjugation. So I guess that matters a lot too. So I think if we take one of the kind of lessons from your book, it's that there are these self-reinforcing positive cycles of psychological growth that feed off the institutional and then the institutions improve when the psychologies of individuals change. Now I wonder how in that light you view something that's been noticed you know a lot around the world is this kind of threat to institutions and institutional functionality and it's been talked about so for instance say democracy in the west It's been talked about in the same breath as the rise of sort of tribal identities. So is it possible, at least, you know, conceptually for this to lead to a sort of a vicious cycle rather than a virtuous one, where, for instance, the kind of the salience of some sort of other identity marker could undermine democracy. And then when you undermine democracy, it sort of reinforces this kind of clannishness. Is that a way of interpreting perhaps what's going on?
1: Yeah. And I think that one of the things about my argument is that the kind of impersonal social norms that that I emphasize in the book are, they don't fit as well as other kinds of social norms, like nepotism with our psychology, kind of in-group tribal loyalty is very natural for people to think. The idea that you should be equally uh, fair to everyone in the world is much more non-intuitive and it takes more kind of socialization and work to get people to really internalize that. So it's very easy to shift back to a kind of tribal way of thinking. And, you know, there's some forces in the world that seem to be pushing that way so the current research in my lab, um, one of the things we're doing is building on a paper by Ben Anke in the QJE, where he took um, moral universalism as measured by some psychologists uh, at different counties in the US. And he had associated with Trump voting in 2016. We showed that the same prediction also holds for the 2020 election. And uh, we've been trying to explain that variation in moral psychology, which seems to have gotten wider. So urban areas have gotten, actually they're about the same on moral universalism, but the other areas have gotten more moral parochial. So you see this division, uh, difference in the U.S., and looking at the effects of economic and weather shocks. And at least preliminary results suggest that when you get hit with economic and weather shocks, you get more morally parochial, which could be part of what's, what's driving this effect down. The other thing is residential mobility plays a key role in my story. And number of counties in the U.S. for various reasons have become less residentially mobile, and so that can also lead to in-group loyalty and, and some of this psychological change.
0: Yes. Yeah. So in a sense, it is the case that you know the the as much as there is the potential for these positive cycles. There's also a story of decline here as well. I mean, at least conceptually. So maybe you're gonna you're gonna write a book called Collapse next in, in your uh, pursuit of the Jared Diamond territory.
1: Exactly, I'll follow Jared's lead.
0: So you know, we've now that we've got the kind of core thesis, it would be useful to explore a little bit further the kind of touch points with some of the things that economists are concerned about. I'd like to know how you feel about the kind of the, the behavioral revolution in, in in economics. You know, I think at, at some level you must be very open to it in the sense that clearly it's 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 a departure from the kind of very stripped down homo economicus, which from your work, at least, that's clearly a big abstraction and not a helpful one. But I guess the, the insights that we're getting from WEIRD are that this kind of search for universals that kind of underpins some of the research there is maybe a little bit misguided. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, I'm a huge fan of the behavioral revolution, but at the same time, we have to put well, there's a behavioral economics, and then there's kind of work going on in economic history and and economic development. And I think all these together, I mean, I've been really impressed over the last 20 years or so watching this development, you know, just increasing evidence. And every time I think, you know, we might be hitting the wall, someone develops a new interesting way to, to show something. So yeah, so that's been really delightful to see that. I remember a conversation with uh, kind of fellow anthropologist in 2000. And we were wondering, you know, when psychology and economics were going to get onto this, all this cultural variation. And my friend was very optimistic about psychology and pessimistic about economics. I was less sure because I was really interacting with some amazing behavioral economists at the time, Colin Cameron and Ernst Fair. So I kind of thought that it would take off in behavioral economics, which didn't really happen. It actually was development economics and economic history where, the, where I saw the takeoff later. But psychology has had, you know, even though they recognize this problem of psychological variation, the incentive structure of the discipline didn't, they haven't really changed the amount to which they're sampling is is heavily biased. But, you know, economics has gone in all these interesting directions.
0: Yeah. And I guess, you know, one thing that as an observer of a lot of this too, I would have felt that economists would have been very reluctant to let go of the, in a sense, the predictive power of the very simple individual conception. And it seems that economists have been you know, ha- happy to do that, right? Maybe this has come from a realisation that there's just a lot of things that we can't explain. But, you know, it's it has led to an untying of the hands. And I actually remember, you know, being in seminars where people talked about, you know, now you're un- untying our hands, anything can happen. So I think one of the kind of ways in which your work addresses that, too, is that you're actually, in a sense, thinking of this kind of meta-individual, right? So the individual is not somebody who drops from heaven as, as the standard economics view. You also aren't saying anything can just happen, right? So it has to be, in a sense, a, a, it's a different sort of an, a broader notion of equilibrium. It's the, the constructed individual has to be, in some sense, consistent with the set of institutional-
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, history is gonna matter, but that doesn't leave you unconstrained. It puts the constraints of history on the individual. Uh, and then there's you know the, the latitude from that is is small.
0: Yeah, so I think this has got sort of profound implications pushed in that direction in economics. And just at the end, I mean this is an area that I'm I'm really quite ignorant of. I am curious about how this work relates to the view of individual cooperation and prosociality that, that we also see in psychology. So coming from the other view that that there seems to be an innateness to that seems to also challenge the view that you have right so i'm thinking of the the two because medies, hmm. that sort of view and, and the kind of what i think was sometimes called the mismatch hypothesis so how do, how does that relate to your work and um, how, how is that received by psychologists
1: well so yeah so the miss just so people know the mismatch idea is this idea from evolutionary psychology where the reason why people are so cooperative in say behavioral games the ultimate game or something like that is because we evolved in a society of close kin and repeat interactants and we somehow can't generalize that when we get into big cities and stuff and i mean i think this work is a real problem for them because we find all this variation no matter how you measure whether you use blood donations or you use behavioral games you get this variation across places and then we seem to have a growing number of theories that can explain that variation which don't have to do with life on the savannah Fifty thousand years ago, so it's saying that culture can really shape you know, our sociality and whatnot. But on the other side, you know, I begin with these basic instincts. So you know, we do have an instinct for reciprocity, an instinct for kinship. But the social norms can do all kinds of interesting things with that to help people engage
0: with strangers or
1: or build larger social groups and whatnot.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's a good point to end because I think you know one of the differences between that if we take that view of psychology seriously as opposed to yours is that we shouldn't really be seeing the mismatches that we see all over the world as say development tries to get you know as democracy tries to take because if we have a kind of a core psychology that's common we wouldn't expect to see that so one of the this gets back to the issue of development policy you know yeah
1: so i i would say i want to say though that we have a core psychology um like everybody cares about their children everywhere in the world so there, there is that kind of human nature it's just that we're such a cultural species that we can acquire norms and internalize motivations and that can shape, you know, we can extend that to our nephews and stuff and treat them really nicely. So, so that, that kind of idea.
0: Yeah, so it's really that latter element that your work emphasizes and that's really quite distinct from the kind of core traditional elements in psychology. Okay Joe this has been a wonderful conversation for me it was really really enlightening to read your book uh, again and, and and this time I read it all pretty much all in one sitting and it, and it wasn't hard to do it was actually a lot of fun so thanks a lot for the conversation and thanks for your time
1: Yeah yeah it's great to be with you Patrick thanks a lot for doing this